Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. As a way of introduction, um, Okay, so as a way of introduction, we're gonna, I'm going to show a snippet of a video from a League and Air conference, and Al Mohler is the one speaking. He's asked a question. It has it on here, and uh, and then it has his reply. And if and it, it is, I'm just doing it on the computer. If you can't see it, it's all right. I I believe you'll be able to hear it, which is the important thing. Aside from that, it's Al Mohler. Just it's a picture of him speaking. So. In what ways is our current cultural climate forcing the mushy middle? And it kind of goes back to the seeker-sensitive question. We all wanted in on that one because that's where we live. But one of the interesting things to note is that there aren't many new seeker-sensitive churches because that fit a certain cultural moment when people were saying to unbelievers, you can gain a bit of social capital by coming to join with us. You can. There's some value added to your life if you come and join, join with us. If you just come and, 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 and be with us, will add meaning and spirituality to your life in a, in a non-threatening way. But in the hardening secularization that we're now experiencing, people are going to pay social capital to hang around with anyone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going to forfeit social capital. They're going to run a risk for being members of our churches. There once was a time when, especially someone in, say, a southern town, he wanted to come and he wanted to, he had his family, wanted to be able to raise his children, wanted to be able to sell life insurance. He had to have credibility. He joined credibility by, uh, that is, add credibility by joining the First Baptist Church, First Presbyterian Church. That was just what people did in an age of cultural Christianity. Well, now you may fail to become a partner in your law firm because you're a member of a Bible-believing, gospel-teaching church. The mushy middle is disappearing because in a time of hardening, I'm not going to use the word persecution, but in a time of hardening opposition could well turn into persecution, people are running a risk to hang around with the likes of us. And the mushy middle is going to disappear in a, in a, in a hurry because the pressures on both sides are coming real hard. So, do, do you feel do you feel that the reality of what he's saying. Do you? Do you... <laughs> okay. There okay. we go. I think I think she'll be quiet now. Do, but do you feel the reality of um, and, and get get a sense of people perhaps paying social capital in order to hang out with the likes of us? Are are you are you that different than the culture around you? How? Um, have, have you experienced that mushy middle? Or are you afraid of being squeezed out? I, re- I recall a time when um, I felt like we needed to leave a mainline liberal church for something more biblical. And someone who knew us and knew that we homeschooled our kids said, she gave us some advice and said, um, well, just don't be so removed from the world that you're isolated and just become weird. So that was her. That was her 
advice to me. Uh, she had been a Sunday school teacher in our class. I looked up to her, and that was her advice to me. She, she didn't say this could be tough in leaving what has felt like your family, uh, but, but uh, I support you. No, she said, don't be so strange. Don't be so uh, bought in that you just become weird. Well, how, how different from the world are you willing to look? How weird are you willing to be for the cause of Christ? How different are your, are your loves, your passions, your desires than that of the world around you? Our, our lesson today shows us that uh, the life of a disciple is blessed in the midst of outward negative circumstances. And, uh, and, and ultimately, I think we're going to see that these outwardly negative circumstances flow from being a disciple. So it's kind of an interesting uh, thing going on here. At first, we, let's, let's look in uh, verse 17 through uh, 19. Uh, and it says that he came down with them and stood at the le- on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with any unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So, again, once again, we're seeing what appears to be an indiscriminate um, healing of all those who came around. Now, some, some think that this is Luke's version of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And, and, it, and it could well be. It's, it's uh, less detailed. There are many differences between this and Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Others think that this would simply be yet another sermon. There are some similarities to the Sermon on the Mount, but it would not be at all strange for a preacher to use information again in a different sermon, and yet it was some of the same information that he's used before. You, you well know that. Um, so whether or not it's really part of that or, or not, we have to get at least this context right. That, so it says that he came down with them, and stood on a level place. So he had been on this mountain praying all night. And evidently, he's not, maybe he wasn't in his place of prayer where he prayed all night, but when that morning came, last week we talked about when morning came, he left that place and he called the twelve. Who then, out of the, so it's out of a group of disciples, out of those who are following him, who are learners, who are following him, he calls the twelve. And with those 12, he calls them apostles because they will be ones who are sent. And they are the ones who are going to be um, his spokes, spokes, uh, spokesmen as he leaves this place. This is who he's turning his, uh, the reins over to. They're going to be the leaders of the new church. So perhaps they're, I don't know, part of the way down the mountain and, and this group is, uh, is where he meets them. So it appears then maybe that group comes down as well as the, those 12. But then as they come down off the mountain, there's this level place where they're gathered, and there are all kinds of people gathered here from all around. And these are like those uh, concentric circles where there would be people who are those 12 who are close, 
Then you have the disciples who are listening and paying attention. And then there would be others who probably just showed up just to see what all this commotion is about. Because they're, they're the ones who came from just every direction. And in this great crowd of people, as it talks about. And they came for this, the, to, be, to hear what he's saying. So there, there's a curiosity. But they, they came to hear and be healed. So his reputation is going before him. They understand where he's going to be. And they kind of um, crowd in upon him. And then I guess this would be physical healings as well as exorcisms. Of those who had... Um, been bothered by spirits. So through his touch, he had healed them all. And it, it is interesting that he takes care of this physical issue before he goes to the spiritual issue. As we move on, um, we're, we're going to get into the very spiritual issue, but he, didn't, he did not ignore the physical need to begin with. So he, he healed them all, and now he's ready to talk to them said uh, he addressed uh, his disciples. And, and so perhaps in this crowd there are people of the world there who are not yet believers in him, not yet followers of him, and they're in the hearing of these words. But uh, and initially they, he's, he's addressing the disciples and, and speaking to them to help those who, whom he has just called, those who are following him, He's helping them understand how unusually blessed they are. So the first thing we see is that it's it, the uh, it's blessed uh, a disciple's blessed to be poor, which seems very odd. Verse twenty says, "And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God.'" So, have you had the blessing of being poor? Can, and can you remember a blessing? Can, can you remember how being poor might, be, uh, might have been a blessing? And, and it seems so odd to hear that in our world where it's such an unwanted state. Nobody wants to be poor. And our poor are rich compared to lots of other places where they're poor. The, our friends in Rwanda, they, they set new standards for being poor uh, as far as comparing to our West Virginia poor. Um, but I, I'm thinking of like a young couple who gets married. They, they've come from perhaps uh, households where they've experienced a comfortable uh, standard of living. And as they come together and get married, they have to come to grips with the fact that out of their new family unit, what it can provide, it may be different than what they have come from. So they might have to adjust their standard of living and there may be things in a learning curve that they have to figure out how to go without because they simply can't afford it. But that's okay because they're in a season of where all you need is love. So it's okay that they can't have this or can't do that, which they were accustomed to. But then that same couple, you advance 10, 15 years down the road, the family has grown, their pursuits continue to get busier and busier on careers, and careers are growing. The demands of those careers, the demands of family, have taken up their attention and their time, and there begins to be a um, fracture or a distance between the couple, because they're not just devoted to each other. 
All you need is love is gone. That was a former season, and what you now need is are some really good jobs in order to keep all the balls in the air. And so then there's this distance that comes in, and at some point in time, if you know, Lord is willing, they might come to their senses and say, I wish it was like it used to be. Do you, do you remember when we had nothing, and we were in that first apartment, and all we had was each other? So that's, there's a blessing in being poor. So you're not cut up with all your stuff. Now, this poor, in this historical sense, in the Old Testament, the people of God were poor. When they were taken captive by other nations, um, And it was in those times that they certainly looked forward to those promises of redemption and restoration. And I I think it's also important to say, this is not a prescriptive text for the state of every person who calls himself a Christian. It's It's not necessary that everybody be financially poor. That's not what it's saying. And this becomes clear that this is something more than physical or, or temporal financial uh, ability when we see the contrast down in verse 24. Verse 24 says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. One commentator wrote, The rich have a state of mind which ensnares them in the limited perspectives of this world, lulls them into foolish self-confidence, and beguiles them into thinking that their material prosperity has its goal simply in their own rich enjoyment of the good things of life. The contrast between the rich and the poor helps us understand that it is in their posture. It's in their attitude. It's, it's, it's what's inside of them that's wrong. It's, it's, not, it's not the whether or not you have money. Because it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have things. But the things of this world can cloud our perspective. That's what, that's what that commentator is describing. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. We can lose track of what's really important because we have been consumed with keeping all the balls in the air, like the young couple. But there's more. The poor in spirit, the disciples, are poor because they are followers of Jesus. So it's because you got to keep this in the context, and he has just called those uh, out of out of all those who are following him, he's called the twelve, and then he's looking at the disciples and saying, "Blessed are you who are poor." And he says, "For yours is the kingdom of heaven." So he's he's describing how you are poor because I you're followers of me. So there's in in the in the sense that. They're, they're leaving careers. They're, they're doing things that are going to make them actually poor, but they're poor in spirit, meaning they know they can't save themselves. They know they can't save themselves. They know that it's not up to them. And so they have surrendered to the Lord Jesus. And he says that you are poor because you're following me, but you are blessed because you are now an heir of the kingdom. So are you poor? At the end of your time, whether that be today or tomorrow, 
And that could easily come today or tomorrow, as it, just as it could in 10 or 15, 20, 30 years. Will you have earned your consolation, as the rich are talked about? Or will you have spent the remaining days that you have rejoicing in that truth that you are an heir of the kingdom of heaven? So they're blessed, a disciple's blessed to be poor. And then we see that a disciple's blessed to hunger. And as one who likes to eat, I, I find this to be challenging. So let's look in verse 21. It says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then he goes on and says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So there's this contrast between the, the, what's the already, what's happening in the present, which is, and, and the contrast for what is to come. And so if you are hungry now, and that, and then, that hungry kind of goes right along with being poor. Um, but what are you hungry for? Do, do, you, do you thirst? Do you hunger for righteousness? Do you hunger for the sweet fellowship of the saints when we come together? Do you hunger for the word of God? Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As a deer pants for a flowing, for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, 1, King David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As hot as it's been, y'all get hot doing stuff. And then what do you drink to cool down? I, I drink a lot of water, and I, I somehow get really thirsty doing nothing. And then if I actually do something, and I get to rolling, I am so hot, and I just need all kinds of water. And there's not much that's going to stand between me and that cold water. I'm not going to say, I'll just take some of that next week. You know, things are a little hectic for me. So I'll get my cold drink of water to slake my thirst in a month or two. You don't do that. When you're thirsty, when you're hungry, you run to the source. David, King David, he recognized that the, the Lord was the only true satisfaction for those things that he may hunger for. Today, with us, we're tempted to find meaning and significance in all sorts of things. And, and, and many people follow that. We follow those things. And we don't believe the truths of the Lord. And I, I, know, I know this seems uh, simplistic, especially to complicated issues of addiction, abuse, depression, anxiety, etc. But the truth is that the only true satisfaction is to be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The, the evil one wants to keep luring you from the body, from your time in the Word of God, from your time in prayer. He wants to distract you so that he may own you. That's, this is the reality of the spiritual warfare we are in. I told someone that I believe God's Word so much 
And I know the beauty and the benefits of the church to be so significant that I would crawl the church to experience that community, that sweet fellowship of the saints, to be with the people of God and to hear the preaching of the word and be able to praise him. Now that's thirsting. Are you willing to crawl to church? Are you willing to crawl to get to him? Are you willing to do that and ignore all those other things that get in your way to distract you? And again, there's a contrast. Verse 25 says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So there's that contrast between the what's happening now, and if our eyes are not on him now, and we're not seeking him, if we're not thirsty for him, and we're feeding on the things of the world, we will be hungry then. And evidently, it's important to talk about this laughter thing. It, uh, evidently, people have read these verses, and then they think that the church must be a somber, solemn place. And, that's, and, and so it could be, if, you, if you've ever met Christians who, are, who seem to have no joy in them, maybe they've been shaped by this kind of teaching. You might realize that I found this to be strange to me, and I had to learn it, because I, this I don't know. If, if, if you weren't able to laugh and be a Christian, I guess I'd just have to be a heathen. The Lord made me to laugh. Oswald Sanders said, Should we not see the lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? And I said, well, praise the Lord. That's... I got some lines, and they're typically lines of laughter. I don't have a lot of stress lines, but I got a lot of lines of laughter. I like to laugh big, and I think the Lord has released us from being oppressed and brought joy into our hearts. We should be able to find joy. Kent Hughes says, What Jesus assaulted is the superficial, shallow mirth that characterizes the world the inability to weep at the right things, and the ability to laugh at the wrong things. I thought it was a beautiful description, very succinct, of what the world does. And in this day and age where the wrong is called right and the right is called wrong, I think this is the the thing that uh, this is addressing. So what are the things that make you weep? Do you weep for what the Lord weeps? Do the injustices of the world make you weep? Do you weep over the broken, the hurting, the lost, the unsaved? Do you weep over your friends and family who believe a watered-down gospel so that their lives are not transformed at all? Do you weep over them? Do you, do you weep or are you concerned for the security of their soul if they, if they have experienced true conversion? Do you weep for those who have been bound by legalism who need to be set free with the true gospel? Do you weep for those without hope? Knowing that hope is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. For those who are not bothered or by the troubles our Lord, if, they're not, if you're not bothered by what it is that troubles our Lord today, it would be those people who will hunger in the end. For those who are not troubled so they don't weep now, they will weep in the end. So you're blessed 
to be poor, you're blessed to be hungry. The next you see is that you're blessed to be hated. It, and it's as if, it's if, as if the sermon can't get any better. You're blessed to be hated. Verse 22 says, blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now, if you're looking with me, you see that there's a comma and it's not a period. It says, on account of the Son of Man. Then 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then the contrasting verse is, woe to, in verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now that just seems strange. That just seems strange. I thought that was part of the deal. I thought we were supposed to have people speak well of us. This seems like the opposite day of, at school, where what I thought was supposed to be right is now different. John 15 says, that's John 15 and verses 19 through 20 says, If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is Jesus preaching in a different place, different time, saying the same thing. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, keep, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So that's John 15, 9 and 19 and 20. So if the world is speaking well of you all the time, it's because you have sacrificed some principle or you're not willing to take a stand for Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are at enmity with the world. When, when, when we talk about we were at enmity with God, we were separated from God, but it, and we like to think in this beautiful land that we live in that those, if, if we get the radicals and we understand where they're coming from, but our neighbors who don't know the name of the Lord surely are on neutral ground. The Bible just speaks of no neutral ground. Those who we think are on neutral ground are at enmity with God. They may live decent moral lives. They may not seem like killers and murderers, but they're at enmity with God, just as you once were. So as he renews your heart, now you are in Christ, you are joined to him, you have a union with Christ, and you are in him. Now that you are in Christ, you are at enmity with the world. If you don't feel that tension, I would suggest we need to read more of his word. We need to spend more time with him in prayer because there's this tension between the world and his church. More and more these days, you don't see much tension uh, in the church like that because the church continues to conform to the world. But it's like Al Mohler was talking about, that mushy middle is being forced out. Because of the cultural changes going on around us, it's no longer the safe place to say, I'm a Christian. To say you're a Christian, there will come a cost for it. So more and more, with that increasing opposition, as Mohler says, persecution may come. 
The key part to this, though, is it's on account of the Son of Man. So if you're suffering because you're a jerk, you deserve what you're getting. Christians do this sometimes. I mean, they're, they're still Christian. So I'm a Christian, and I'm going to be a jerk with my Christianity, and now somebody opposes it, and then I say I'm being persecuted. This happens. Currently, in our culture, in, in our town, we have some issues, and I think we are being persecuted to some degree in a couple of different areas. I'm not going to speak about those, but what I'm speaking about specifically is our willingness and ability to be jerks. So if, if in my workplace, I just kind of roll, steamroll you with my faith talk, and, I need, and I'm looking for conversion to come from you, and I'm going to condemn you because you're going to participate in the upcoming holiday of Halloween, and I'm going to uh, make my opinions known to you, and I'm looking for conversion, and I just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. Not only you, but every other one of our co-workers, and I just keep at it and keep at it. So then comes down from on high a rule that says, y'all can't do that in, your, in the public uh, square. You can't do that in my business anymore. Now I feel very offended that me, the good Christian, who was doing the Christ-like thing, is now being persecuted. I say I was being persecuted because I was a jerk. If we really want to be treated, we, we want to treat people the way we want to be treated. We simply want to love people into the kingdom. There are times for yelling. Jesus yelled at the church, if you will. He yelled at the Pharisees. He yelled at the religious people. You don't see him yelling at the sinners. I, and I don't know. Can I say that, that he just, he didn't? I may, have to, I may have to back up on that one, but I don't even recall a place where he yelled at sinners. I think he yelled, and some people think Jesus loved. He didn't yell at anybody. Well, you've got to read. And when he's saying, when he's, when he's saying whoa, he's, he's yelling. And he, he really yelled at the religious people. But the, the sinners he hung out with, built relationship with, and loved them into the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. It's what, what we're charged to do. So you're not charged to be a jerk. You're not charged to make people mad, but in because of the cause of Christ, if you are suffering, take comfort. Because if you're suffering because of the cause of Christ, it's part of being a disciple. It's part of discipleship. So may we be willing to endure the cost of being poor, of being hungry, of being hated for the cause of Christ. May we embrace these things with joy so that he may be glorified in the present as we await our final home, when he will make all things right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.